to see you. <coughs> that music, um, I don't know if it's a superhero movie or a cop show from the 80s. I'm not sure which. But all I know is my mustache is not big enough for that music. So anyway, well, happy Independence Day, everybody. Although I was thinking about this, uh, I got to be honest. Um, yes, I am a big fan of um, freedom and liberty and all of that. But I also recognize that I don't want to be completely independent from Jesus. So uh, on Independence Day, I'm going to declare my dependence on him. Okay, so I'm just going to get that one out of the way. And uh, I hope your celebration is going to be great this weekend. Um, quick announcement. I can't, oh man, I want to say something so bad, but I can't quite yet. Um, hopefully next week we're going to be able to announce a new kids director. So if you've been praying with us for that, thank you very much. Um, We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see. I, we're real close, real close. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen, but I'm just waiting for a couple of pieces of information, and so hopefully we're going to be able to, to announce that next week. So anyway, um, let's get rolling here. Time to go to work. Uh, earlier this year, um, I discussed with you, when we talked about the Bible, the importance of context. When we talked about the, the uh, historical context of the Bible, the cultural context of the Bible, and the literary context of the Bible. Those are at least the minimum um, areas that I try to, to look at, you know, just when I'm doing my own study, when I'm, you know, prepping for these kinds of things. I, I think they're very important. Uh, for those of you who understand uh, bi biblical scholarship, it is um, what we call hermeneutic, which is like this $5 word for the, the rules of interpretation. But for me, when I'm trying to interpret the text, these are the three things that I'm looking at. And we're exploring the life of King David, so obviously we're going to deal with some historical context and we're going to deal with some cultural context. But today I want to show you some literary context. I want to show you something that is in the text itself and I want to offer some thoughts on it. So remember, my, my fundamental belief is that authors and editors, when they're writing something down, um, in, at least in the ancient world, but certainly today as well, is that they're attempting to communicate something to us. You know, they actually have an idea in their mind of something they want you to know. Uh, they want you to, to not only know it, but probably want you to do something with it as well. When you sit down to write an email or a text message, you are trying to communicate something, right? I mean, you just don't randomly, well, I don't know, sometimes some of the emojis, I can't read them anyway, so, you know, it could just be random. But in the case of, of any type of serious work, when you're trying to communicate something, I mean, there's, there's an agenda there. You know, these ancient authors have an, a, a particular agenda, and we want to take those seriously. So we want to think of them <coughs> as deliberate and not as uh, just kind of like, random collections of stories. Mm -mm. There is something that's happening within the story itself. There is a message that's trying to be um, uh, conveyed to, to the audience. And so I briefly want to run through a series of passages describing the events surrounding um, David's rise to power, his rise to becoming king. And I want to show you these. Uh, we started with this in the last couple of weeks the beginning of 2 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. Uh, if not, that's cool. I'll put it up on the, on the screen for you to, to read. And, and what happens is, is that within the storyline, there's a structure. 
And the structure is what we're interested in here. These events create a structure, and you're going to see what it's like in just a minute. And ultimately, what I'm trying to tell you is that the story is going somewhere. Again, it's not random, it's deliberate. There's an intentional move on the part of the author trying to get us to understand something. And there's a theme that runs through the first four chapters, and I'll include some uh, detail as we move along. So here's the first one. I've tried to set this up um, pretty easily. You know, each one of these boxes is a chapter, and there's something that I want to pull from, from each of the chapters so that you can see the structure that I'm talking about. So hopefully this makes sense. And you know how much I like pictures, so sometimes I have to have a visual. This is my visual. This is the way I'm remembering it. So Second uh, Samuel opens <coughs> with David learning about Saul's death. So remember... David is married to Saul's daughter, and there's a bit of conflict between the two of them. Not just a little bit, there's a lot of conflict between the two of them. Saul has lost the favor of God, David has gained the favor of God, and Saul is just grasping and hanging on to power, and David keeps, um, uh, continues to be successful on virtually everything that he does. But he's on the run. Ultimately, he is, he is on the run. And finally, <clears throat> Saul bites off a little more than he can chew, takes on the Philistines, and dies. Dies in battle. Okay? Sort of. A survivor of the battle finds David and confesses that he took a mortally wounded Saul's life. So imagine this. You, you, typically what happens is that you would find the highest ground if you're um, in ancient military. You would find the highest ground, you would defend that hill. And so the Philistines overrun the Israelites. Saul is on one of these hills, and he's mortally wounded somehow in the battle, and he's almost dead. And uh, uh, another soldier, an Amalekite, which actually has some significance, uh, comes up to him and realizes that something is terribly wrong, and Saul says, just end my life. Don't let the Philistines take me. So he does kills him. And so he goes and he tells David the story. <clears throat> then Saul said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. Can you imagine? So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. He says, I brought them here to you, David. David grieves despite his differences with Saul. He was still his king and his father-in-law. Remember, David is loyal. David is loyal to God, and God put the anointing on Saul. Okay? David sees Saul still as the Lord's anointed. See this in a moment. And so David grieves, <clears throat> and yet he does one last thing. A couple of verses later in verse 14. Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike the messenger down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Now this is quite strange. Because if you are a rival for power, if you have had the anointing of God, and Saul has the anointing of God, and God said that, you know, Saul's on his way out and you're on the way up. 
This is an opportunity. And yet David does completely the opposite. Because if the Lord anointed him, then the Lord was going to give him the right timing in order to assume the throne. Again, it's the loyalty. He is loyal to what God has decided in all of its complexity. <clears throat> now, the other thing that happens here, and I think this is important because there's some Jewish cultural things that are going on as well. In so doing, David actually affirms his own innocence by carrying out justice. Anyone who would strike down the king would be put to death. And he also fulfilled his duty uh, to the head of his tribe, to his father-in-law. He did both. Now again, there's some, some interesting cultural things that are going on here related to the Torah, but he fulfilled his role in two ways, both as an agent of the king, but also as a family member. He was loyal until Saul's very end, which I find just fascinating, because that had to be a hard spot to be in, right? So that's chapter one. Chapter 2, of course, a civil war between Saul's house, household and David begins. Because this can't be easy, folks. Anytime you get groups of people together, you get politics, right? So Saul has a general. His name is Abner, which just doesn't sound very intimidating, right? Abner? No, it doesn't. But Saul's general, Abner, props up the king's second son, a man named Ishbosheth, which is a lot of fun to say. Ishbosheth. <clears throat> so Saul has a son named Jonathan. He and David are friends. Both of them die in battle, and so all that's left is Ishbosheth and a couple of other um, uh, sons, too, I suspect, but at least one uh, that's older than the rest, Ishbosheth. But interestingly enough, the story talks about how Abner meets um, David's general, Joab which is not very intimidating either. So you got Abner versus Joab. This is not going to make a great MMA match, right? Just because of the names. Unless they had some like the Crusher or the, you know, the Beast or something. I don't know what it is. Anyway, so you have, you have these two generals. <coughs> so Abner and Joab meet in battle. And interestingly enough, <coughs> Joab, who is David's general, has a couple of brothers. Because um, in ancient Israel, the more sons you have, the better. Consequently, they would all do things together because it was a very family-oriented system. And so Joab has a brother <coughs> whose name is Asahel. And Asahel sees Abner in battle and goes after him, chases after him for quite some time. And, and Abner is, is telling this, this other person, just, you know, back off, back off, kind of a thing. But he's in hot pursuit of Abner, and here's what happens. Again, Abner warned Asahel, stop chasing me. But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. Well, isn't that a pretty picture, right? Quick note for those of you who are interested in such things. Very often uh, in, in ancient times, you would have a spear that had a, a head on it, but also the very bottom part had a, had a pointed metal cap as well. 
This is for two reasons. One, so that you could actually use both ends of the, of the weapon. But secondly, two, you could take that spear, shove it into the ground, and use it as a pike or some type of, of, a, of a stable weapon, uh, depending on what your circumstances were. So both ends of the spear have spikes on it. And our guess here is Asahel got the, the butt end of the stick through his stomach and apparently out his back. So keep that in mind. Or don't. That would probably be a good thing as well. Spears are often tipped on both ends. Um, actually, there's some archaeology that has found you know, several of these because obviously the wooden shaft has um, uh, uh, disintegrated over time, and so you still have these metal parts. Okay, so keep that story in mind because there's something else that's coming up. So, <coughs> in the midst of battle, he kills Joab's brother. Later, Abner, remember, Saul's general, Abner switches teams. He decides to align himself with David because, you know what, it can't be easy. You got shifting allegiances all the time. And so Abner ends up going over uh, to, uh, to David the house of Saul is failing, and he's an opportunist. And so he sees an, uh, a chance uh, to get into David's good graces. And frankly, this is a really good thing for David because, <coughs> excuse me, good thing for David because Abner still has a lot of influence over a number of the tribes, okay? So we just finish up chapter 2 with Abner killing Asahel, and then... <clears throat> the end of two and beginning of three, Abner switches sides. But as you can possibly imagine, Joab, he hasn't forgotten what occurred earlier, right? Because he killed his brother. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner. Remember? Joab, Abner. They're, they're not friends. But David did not know it. An important clue. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab... Uh, took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately and there to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Again, pretty picture, right? It's amazing. Now this puts David in an awkward position, as you can imagine. There's some politics that are going on here. He wanted Abner's influence over those other tribes, especially in the north. And of course, those tribes would question his integrity. Did he order Abner's death? Think about this. I mean, you know, human politics hasn't changed a whole lot. We've just gotten more sophisticated with technology. The bottom line is the same. People ask certain questions. But at the same time, he'd like to keep his battle-hardened Joab. And this is one of the guys that has been with him for a period of time. He understands command. He understands David. I mean, this is a big deal. And so he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. He himself is innocent, and he has to prove his innocence, but at the same time, he kind of needs to punish Joab. So David grieves Abner publicly and curses Joab's family. Now, this is a little funny. David says this. <clears throat> May his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. Because in those days, it wasn't just enough for one person to have it. The entire family had to suffer too. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy. Ugh. 
or who leans on a crutch, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks food. That's quite a curse. Now, here's an interesting little side bit. This idea of um, leans on a, on a crutch, <coughs> the word that's used here can also uh, be used to describe uh, a part of a tool that a woman would use with a loom. And so really, this is kind of a euphemism that, um, I don't know how to say this um, politely, but essentially that his family would be filled with effeminate men. I, now, I don't know how else to describe that, but here's, here's the bottom line. The issue here is, the curse is not only on him, but on his family that there would be uh, problems, but essentially that there would be no more warriors. Think about that. And that's quite a curse, Right? Yes, you're a battle-hardened, and I appreciate you, but no one else in your family is going to be. I'm going to curse you for that. Interesting, right? Funny how these words have multiple meanings and how some of them turn out to be not what you think they are. Hmm. Chapter 4, moving on. Finally, in chapter 4, David's rival, Ishbosheth, is murdered by two of his own men. Again, we've got lots of intrigue that's going on here. Believing that they'd be rewarded for ending the war, they bring Ishbosheth's head to David. Now imagine that. Ride in a couple of days with a head in a sack. Lovely. David answered, When someone told me Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and in his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? Well, that's good, isn't it? Rid the earth of you. So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. I think it's better. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in an Abner's tomb at Hebron. Now, this is not just to be um, disgusting, but really what they did is they took the hands that did the evil deed and the feet that carried the evil news. And they hung them up so that people could see it. <laughs> There's some advertisement. In chapter 5, David is crowned king, and he turns his attention to Jerusalem. We're going to talk more about that one in the future, because that in and of itself is very interesting. But here's the bottom line. If we think about these first four chapters, the organizing feature of chapter 1 through 4 and David's rise to power is one simple thing. Murder. That's the organizing feature. You look at the story and how it's constructed. It's one murder after another and the ripple effect that they have. Politics and intrigue, yes, but it's centered on murder, not just on the politics and the intrigue. Now, to be fair, I mean, to be completely fair, I mean, one of those murders is justified. I mean, Abner did kill Joab's brother in the heat of battle in self-defense. Okay, so I guess it's justified, so to speak. 
<clears throat> Some of it is a little bit cultural, but the bottom line to all of this is that there's fallout. You have murder, and you have fallout to that murder. So let me offer a couple of thoughts on this, if I might. <clears throat> First, I think there are, there's some foreshadowing that's going on here. That the author who is telling the story of David is foreshadowing a couple of different things. Uh, but one that sticks out in my mind is that, remember, David is a man after God's own heart. It means he's loyal and he's following the, the Torah even when dealing with murder. I mean, he's doing his best to try to make sure that he's navigating this way forward according to what God's law was. But here's the foreshadow. Eventually, David will have to deal with his own sin that relates to murder in the story of Bathsheba. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. I think that all of this, in part, is a nod in that direction. That it isn't just about these murders, but it's about something that's coming as well. Secondly, <clears throat> this is awfully violent, isn't it? My goodness. People killing each other graphically. The Old Testament often is accused of this. You read the Old Testament, it's just awful the way they kill each other. It's true. There's a lot of that in there. Again, we have to remember, these are ancient people with very different customs. And I think sometimes we try to read things with a 21st century American sensibility or a Western sensibility, and that's not what's happening here. This is a very different people group. And you've heard me say this before. Every time you open the Bible, you're a tourist. There are going to be different customs and things that you're not familiar with, and so it's going to seem a little foreign to you, and, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. But overall, there is a certain amount of criticism that the Old Testament gets for being, being violent. <clears throat> but more so, I think instead of just the commentary on violence, I think it has to do with humanity's fascination with power. Because we are awfully fascinated with power, aren't we? I mean, we look at it all over the place. I mean, we can talk about economics, we can talk about political, we can talk about military, all those kinds of things. But we're, you know, as a, as a species, kind of fascinated with, with power. And I think a lot of times, um, when we see the, this kind of violence, it has to do with men exercising free will in the wrong direction. Okay? I've been thinking about this quite a bit, actually, <coughs> as it relates to power. And just thinking that <coughs> a lot of the evil that we see in the world is, the, is humanity's exercise of free will, again, in the wrong direction. It tends to be self-centered um, rather than other people-centered. And when I talk about in the wrong direction, the, the, the comparison, at least in these first four chapters, is to David, who inquired of the Lord. Remember that in chapter 2? When he thought it was time to begin his move towards um, assuming his his monarchy, the first thing he did, we talked about it last week, is he inquired of the Lord. And yes, he has free will, but the first thing he did is he submitted his will to what the Lord wanted to do, right? So when I talk about this, is that we have this fascination with power, 
and the uh, exercise of free will, but usually in the wrong direction. And that's why I think it's so important that we spend time with, with God. Now, notice that all of the violence that takes place in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 are not orchestrated by God, but rather the fact that these human beings are, are dealing with their own uh, interest in power and exercising their free will. But it's not like David. David is a man, a man after God's own heart. He's loyal to him, and so he's thinking, how do I inquire of the Lord? And rather, they would take matters into their own hands, and they end up making a mess of it. Can we agree on that? They kind of made a mess of it, the whole thing. <coughs> so finally, last thought I want to offer to you is that I think there's a bigger story here. I mean, I mean think about the history of Israel, if you, if you know it. With David, there's no more of the judges. Remember, so Israel takes over the land of Canaan and they're ruled by judges or people that, that God kind of picks to rule, um, to lead the tribes whenever they run into trouble. And they seem to run into trouble an awful lot, right? Like a lot of human beings, you know, or that kind of way. But there's no more judges, there's no warlords or weak kings like Saul. You know, while David would continue fighting and winning wars, he was actually ushering in a new era, at least in the, in the nation of Israel. Brand new era was coming. One that wasn't filled with all of these kinds of squabbles, uh, per se. It's interesting to me because from the bloodshed of humanity, a new era of peace and stability begins to emerge. And as we were singing earlier um, this morning, it just struck me is that what the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for good. That's the redemptive God that we serve. You have this bloodshed with humanity's interest in power and humanity's exercise of free will in the wrong direction and God still has the sovereignty to be able to do something with it. Do something good, bring something good out of all of that. Peace and stability. But maybe there's something else here too. Just a thought. Because a few thousand years later, David's heir would endure the worst of humanity's bloodshed on a Roman cross. A king would usher in a kingdom of peace and stability. You want to talk about foreshadowing. We see this move of bloodshed to a kingdom of peace. And who is in the line and lineage of David? It's Jesus, of course. Even when life doesn't seem very stable, there is a prince of peace. And this is a kingdom theme. Humanity's worst, God still redeems it for something good. That's the ultimate story, I think. At least as I understand it. So even in the storyline of David, we see a redemptive God at work. The foreshadowing, I think, is there. And I think it's good news 
to know that despite all of the craziness, yes, there is a Prince of Peace who still sits on the throne. And Gina said this when she was praying, and I thought this was really good because, you know, I don't know where you are this week. I got this Barry White thing going on down here in my throat just a little bit. <coughs> Dealing with some stuff. You are too. And you watch the news just like I do. Actually, I'm trying to avoid the news these days. I'm finding ignorance is quite blissful. Not necessarily to be recommended, but it's still quite blissful. But I know that there are things that are going on for everybody. We're trying to make decisions, and we're paying higher prices at the stores and at the pumps, and everyone's kind of looking down the road wondering what's happening and why it's happening and that sort of thing. But I want you to be reminded that what the enemy means for evil, God turns it for good. I don't know how. I don't get to choose how, but he does. And the point is not to try to figure that out, but rather to be a man or a woman after his own heart, to be loyal to him, to say, you are good, and I'm going to trust you anyway. Let's pray. God, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. That's what the poet tells us. And I think there are a lot of people in the room today who need some mercy. Various things. They may need traveling mercy. They may need, may need some relationship mercy. They may need, I don't know. But you do. I know you do. <coughs> And I also recognize that um, all of us have all kinds of negative inputs. We see things all around us that raise question marks and make us wonder and make us worry and give us deep concern. In fact, some of the stuff is just downright disturbing that we have to deal with, all of it. But we have a choice to make, Lord, and we need your help. The choice is to give in to the despair that seems to surround us or to trust what we read in your word. That's the choice. That you are a God of redemption and you have demonstrated your redemption to us over and over and over again and there is nothing to suggest that you won't continue to be a God of redemption. And so, Lord, as we gather and we are in your presence, I pray that you would strengthen and you would affirm and you would encourage every person here in the way that they most need because, Holy Spirit, that's what you're about. You love your people and you, <laughs> you give only good gifts. And so I pray, Lord, that whatever anybody needs today, that you would grant them that gift what the enemy means for evil, you can turn it to good because you are that big, you are that powerful, you are that much in control, and nothing is going to stop you. We not only look forward to that, Lord, we expect it. Because you're so good and you have demonstrated your goodness to us, and you've demonstrated it to the people of history, and we're going to choose to trust that. So, Lord, today... 
I pray that every person here would experience your presence afresh and anew, be able to take it in with them to the new week. I pray this all in Jesus' name.